Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $158 billion in assets under management committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. With fall in the air, football's back, and we're in the thick of the playoffs of a condensed baseball season. We're also just three weeks, believe it or not, from the 2020 presidential election. To say a lot is at stake this election cycle in the midst of a bumpy recovery from a short-lived but sharp recession and the COVID-19 pandemic would be putting it mildly. So to help prepare you for a wide variety of potential political outcomes, I'm excited to welcome back two regular guests to the now virtual podcast booth. Marshall Gordon, a senior healthcare analyst at ClearBridge, who's dialing in from a few exits down the Garden State Parkway here in New Jersey, and Dimitri Dian, a senior energy analyst reporting in from across the river in Manhattan. Welcome back, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jeff. So with two debates down and two more to go, we're nearing the finish line in one of the more bizarre presidential campaigns in decades. Could we see a Democratic sweep? Or will gridlock remain in a highly partisan Washington? We'll share our insights in today's podcast, Where Could Election Day Take Markets in the Economy? So there's a lot of options that can certainly take place over the next couple of weeks. And just like some of the conflicting data we're seeing in the economy and markets, there's conflicting signals on who will win the election in November. For example, if you look at all the post two World War II presidents and the only ones that didn't get elected for a second term, there were H.W. Bush, Carter, and Ford. Those three presidents, they have something similar in common. All of them saw a recession within two years of the election date, and all of them saw a material rise in the unemployment rate the year of the election. So by looking at those statistics, it would appear favorable for the challenger, Vice President Biden. But looking at another data point, if you look at real disposable income during election years, when that growth is less than 1%, the incumbent typically loses, and when it's over 1%, the incumbent typically wins. And if you look at Trump, even though we've had a COVID-19 recession and recovery, real disposable income is up 3.2%, which is a very healthy margin. So we're going to have to explore every scenario since we don't know which one's going to pan out. And the first scenario that I'd like to explore is a Trump win. If you have a Trump win, you're obviously not going to see higher taxes. Um, You're less going to see regulation similar to what we've seen over the last four years, but you could see an increase of trade tensions with China. I would imagine this would be moderately positive for the markets. You could see a little bit of a cyclical rotation similar to what happened when Trump took the White House back in 2016. But one area that could get a big boost, at least from a regulation standpoint or lack thereof, is energy. So, Dimitri, Could energy make a comeback with four more years of Trump, or is it more focused on the macro factors, which is going to determine their performance? So I get this question a lot, obviously, as we approach the election, but people can really overestimate the impact of the president of the United States in the oil and gas business. You know, if you think about just very high level, shale industry boomed under Obama uh, and regulations tightened and regulations were loosened under Trump and the industry has been terrible. So with Trump reelected, look, it's more certain that we probably won't get very much in terms of punitive legislation or punitive regulations that pertains to oil and gas. But single-handedly, he's not going to make oil and gas great again. Um, for that to happen, you really need more global supply-demand dynamics to come together. So when I think about it, look, the biggest question that I have is when will oil demand go back to pre-COVID level? 
And we probably need a vaccine for the economy to get a jump start and for folks to get comfortable traveling again. So since the pandemic began, the biggest delta to oil demand has been uh, jet fuel. Folks just aren't flying as much. So if, if that comes back, that's a major, major boost to supply demand dynamics and the industry cash flows. And that's independent of the present. Um, on the supply side, trends, um, trends are generally speaking longer term constructive, but they need to play out. So shale growth is mostly in the past. Companies are embracing free cash flow business models and long term concerns uh, centered around electric vehicles, how that will impact global demand. They're generally causing the likes of BP and Total to forego future growth uh, in oil or just shrink down entirely. So the supply dynamics are generally speaking constructive. So yes, the industry shouldn't expect significant adverse impact, you know, should Trump be reelected. Uh, but the themes of making in the industry investable go really beyond the administration. Yeah, that that, that lies contrary to, to to most people's beliefs that uh, the regulation doesn't play as big of a part in the energy space than uh, than it does. You know, speaking of you know President Trump potentially winning the election, you know, something that's bipartisan obviously is being tougher on drug pricing, right? Lower drug prices overall. It's really the elephant in the room that just won't leave. So, Marshall. Do you think it would be tougher on biopharmaceuticals with Trump or Biden in the White House? I think it's hard to call right now who would be tougher. But I think the the important point that you point, the important thing you point out is actually that it is a bipartisan issue. Both Biden and Trump and their respective parties really do have really sought over several years, the past several years and both administrations uh, to to address the rising cost of drugs, as well as the out of pocket cost of drugs to to the broad U.S. population and particularly seniors. Um, I think that if there is any place that we could see healthcare reform legislation, I think it actually would be more likely along the lines of prescription drug pricing and potentially changing the basis on which we contract for drugs or even possibly giving the government a potential to negotiate directly for prices. And that would probably more likely be under a Biden administration. But I think I think that's a more likely piece of legislation to pass than a Obamacare II or larger uh, piece of health care reform. Great. Yeah. So obviously, it's going to be a, an issue that's going to be with us probably for, for a long period of time. So... Um, let's move over to the, maybe the second scenario that uh, people are talking about, which is a Biden win with a, a divided government. Obviously, in a Biden win, you're probably going to see more regulation and say healthcare, financials, a um, little bit in energy and, and technology as well. So at the margin, that's probably going to be negative for those sectors. From a trade perspective, Biden actually might be better because I think Biden would probably heal relations with a lot of our allies like Europe, for example, and Japan. And it may actually be on the margin more negative for China if Biden can rally our allies to unifiedly go after Chinese trade practices. But all in all, I think in a Biden win and a divided government, I think equities may struggle initially. They may not fall, but I don't think they necessarily go higher until there's a clear path on what the administration is actually going to pursue. Um, the one thing I'll mention about a Trump win with a divided government or a Biden win with a divided government is that we're probably going to get some sort of st stimulus related to COVID, but it's probably going to come in the lame duck section after the elections, but it's probably going to be a much smaller 
package than what you probably see in a democratic sweep, something in the half trillion to, to maybe $1 trillion range. But with a Biden win, you know, obviously Biden has talked about fracking and fossil fuel production in the U.S. Dimitri, how would a Biden win administration impact fossil fuel production? Would it, would it uh, go down or do you think it's really going to be based on supply and demand dynamics that you mentioned earlier? Sure. I mean, the Biden plan effectively centers around uh, the $2 trillion investment package over the first four years to move the country along the path of uh, carbon, dioxide, carbon dioxide emission reductions. It's focused around electrification and paving the way uh, for renewables and carbon reduction technologies more broadly, as well as some green infrastructure. What it clearly does not focus on is actually overly punitive measures for the oil and gas industry. If anything, Biden's been very clear that he does not back uh, kind of the more hardline views such as the van fracking. He's had the, he had his uh, you know read my lips moment in in Pittsburgh last month when he um, when he spoke to the natural gas industry and said that he he absolutely does not support this frack ban. And it's logical. I mean, look, the fact is that U.S. will be using a lot of oil and gas for decades to come, even in the energy transition scenario. And it's better that the resource is produced domestically uh, rather than imported. Now, Biden has talked about limiting activity on federal land. There is definitely ambiguity on what he means by that, whether it aims to stop actual drilling, existing drilling activity on federal land, or to limit new leasing of federal land, which is not nearly as onerous. The impact of that will generally, by and large, be isolated to companies with federal acreage, which is a minority of acreage in the United States. I would expect a greater impact in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico if that's included under the federal um, under federal legislation that prevents actual activity to move forward. But there's also some common ground in the Biden plan with the industry. Uh, for example, the industry welcomes Biden's plan to fund research uh, for and support for uh, carbon capture utilization of storage technology. Industry has been calling for this for many years. But nothing's really uh, nothing's really becoming forward, and Biden's really embracing this technology as a way to decarbonize the United States. And interestingly enough, it's becoming one of the very few bipartisan issues in in energy policy. So, to the extent we have a divided Congress, I think we're going to get a much more watered down version of this two trillion dollar uh, green energy plan. Uh, you're highly unlikely to see all of it be allocated. There'll be some desire for stimulus anyway, just to echo perhaps your comments. And we will see some parts of the plan be implemented to the extent they support jobs. But I, I doubt we're going to see sort of the full $2 trillion get deployed. Green stimulus is still a good way to create jobs, so you'll get something. And when you think about renewable energy, it, it's a lot less energy dense sort of per unit um, than fossil fuels, and therefore it's more labor intensive. And there's been estimates that said anywhere between one and a half to three times more jobs created per unit of energy versus fossil fuels. So there's definitely going to be desire, probably in a bipartisan way, to move forward with some green investment. But it'll be less intensive than it would be otherwise if Biden kind of had a united, fully democratic government. On the flip side, I think broad legislative changes that hurt oil and gas industry would, would generally speaking, be off the table in divided government. Those jobs will be protected. And I think there'll still be some regulatory tightening around their state pipelines and emissions. But I, I, don't, I don't anticipate divided government to deliver anything very much uh, game changing for the industry. Yeah, obviously, with the unemployment rate at 7.9%, uh, providing jobs and creating jobs is certainly uh, something that is a bipartisan issue, for sure. 
The other question I have for you, Dimitri, is obviously we we weren't uh, part of the Paris Agreement about four years ago um, under a Biden win. How much of a difference do you think it would make for the U.S. to rejoin the Paris Agreement? Is that a distinct possibility? And what are the implications? It's certainly a possibility in the Biden administration and probably more than a possibility. It's, it's very highly probable in terms of what it actually does. I think it's an important signal to the economy, to the industry, to the world. The U.S. is um, taking decarbonization very seriously and goals of Paris very seriously. Now, recall that this is a voluntary framework, so there's no specific action that anybody's mandated to take. But it will signal to the corporates that regulatory changes will be coming, that the broad framework that, to be honest with you, everybody's already using of trying to decarbonize by, you know, get to net neutral by 2050 will become maybe potentially more codified. And that can come in a way of regulation or it can come in a way of carbon price, whether that's cap and trade or just the straight price on carbon. But to the extent that corporates are already pursuing this path, companies like Amazon, Microsoft of decarbonization, this just adds to that visibility and adds to that certainty of investment to, into things like EVs, wind, solar. Like I said, it's, it's an important signal, but generally speaking, by and large, I think a lot of corporations are already moving along the framework that is consistent with the Paris Agreement. Marshall, I want to move over to you with a bind-and-win divided government scenario that we're talking about. And one of the things that was a surprise to me was the Biomarin decision here recently. Now, is the FDA getting tougher on approvals or is this more kind of a, a one-off situation? And could uh, Biden-win and a divided government elect maybe a new FDA chief that's less friendly to innovation? Let me take that in two parts. I, I think with respect to Biomarin, um, there's actually been a string recently of uh, non-approvals or what, what the, the FDA calls complete response letters. And it's, it's too many in a row to ignore. But when you look at what was truly going on with those very specific applications for new drugs, I think all of those were actually controversial, including, uh, including Biomarin's, certainly in retrospect. And I think it makes it hard to discern whether there's truly a pattern or whether there was a sort of surprise, a, a string of individual decisions that each in and of each of those could be interpreted as a rational decision. But when you see them all together, perhaps scares investors. I think when we look a little deeper and when, what we've heard from you know, a number of FDA commentators that that we listen to, we suspect that two issues are at play and that they're not truly a change in FDA policy as much more temporal issues. The first is that there has been some change in senior leadership at the FDA. Is a greater risk aversion or some time to transition to and to make more uh, challenging decisions? And that just takes a little time for those players to gain their confidence. And so I think that that is impacting it, but I don't think that, I think that that's more of a short-term issue. The second is that, that, that it's clear that the pandemic is changing communication at, at FDA. It's not uniform across the, the agency. It's probably more along the lines of biologics than it is in the areas of cancer, for instance. And that's because there's a large part of FDA right now that is spending a tremendous amount of time 
working on the treatments for COVID as well as the vaccines for COVID. And that is resulting in less frequent and less open communication so that we're, we're actually seeing more surprises out of FDA because FDA doesn't have the resources to pursue all of the things, all of the projects it needs to with COVID and at the same time keep as current as active in its current reviews. And that really suggests distraction or lack of focus and not necessarily a change in policy. But this is something we're going to actually continue to watch. And I think you do bring up an important question is whether the Democrats could put in a new head of FDA that's perhaps less friendly to the industry. I don't think that it's necessarily so that Democrats or Republicans are more or less uh, friendly to the industry. So I don't think it's necessarily a party line issue. Both Biden and the Obama administration were were pretty positive in terms of drug approvals as well. So I'm not particularly worried about that in terms of the FDA head becoming more conservative and wanting to approve less. Great, great, great comments and, and great uh, insight, Marshall. I guess the, the last area that we should explore here is probably the one that most investors are, are thinking about, which could have market implications, which is a, a democratic sweep. If you look re- recently at the polls that have come out, the Senate seats that are currently held by Republicans, they trail in four races, they're tied in another, and they have small leads in five other races. So it's going to be a very tight race to see who's going to control the Senate overall. And maybe the biggest concern for investors is higher corporate and personal tax rates. I'm not going to go all through the individual tax rates, but I will say the one that I do think will move forward in a democratic sweep is individual taxes on the top tax bracket going back up to 39.6%. This may hurt growth at the margin, but it's not going to cause a recession because this is the rate that we were at under Clinton and under Obama's second term as well. But also on the corporate side, there's a couple of proposals. The first is to increase federal tax rates from 21 to 28%. I look at this as kind of a glass half empty situation or glass half full, I should say, is because 28% is obviously higher than where we were, but it's far lower than the 35% rate that we're at from the early 90s through 2017. And in in fact, 28% is the lowest corporate tax rate that we've had since World War II. So if that happens, sure, you may see uh, some profit taking on on some of the the beneficiaries of that tax rate, but the hit to the S&P 500 would be relatively minor. You can also see an alternative minimum 15% book tax on corporates with incomes over $100 million and a doubling of the minimum taxes on foreign income to 21%. So let's just say all three of those go into effect. It's going to hit comm services, consumer discretionary, and information technology the hardest. But again, the overall effect to the market, maybe 5 or 10% downside. But the one thing I just want to caveat this with is if you think about back in 2009, when Obama took over in office, Democrats had 59 seats in the U.S. Senate and taxes didn't go up for another four years until 2013, because a lot of Democrats were hesitant to rate uh, hiked tax rates when the unemployment rate was high and the economy was slowly recovering. So that's the exact situation that we find ourselves in today. So if I'm thinking about it in that lens, maybe half of that tax package goes forward, or maybe the tax package gets pushed out to late 2021 or 2022 uh, when things at the U.S. economy are in a better shape. But the other half of the equation 
is the large fiscal stimulus package that's going to come out from a Democratic sweep. And I would imagine it's probably going to be proportional to the original HEROES Act proposed by House Democrats of close to $2.2 trillion. You're going to see longer term spending increases after that on infrastructure, climate, healthcare, education. And I think all of these increases of spending should at least negate, if, even if you see higher taxes on corporations and, and higher income earners. So if you have this huge fiscal stimulus package coming in the first quarter of 2021, I think that's going to be a cause a pretty strong rotation over into your cyclicals, your value types of parts of the, the market overall, um, because you are going to boost economic growth in the U.S. And that, generally speaking, is good for cyclical types of companies. Now, one area where you may see some of that stimulus go into is green legislation. So, Dimitri, maybe you can tell me a little bit about, you know, if we do see a, a large amount of stimulus go into green legislation, what areas of the stock market are going to be the biggest beneficiaries of that? So the, the details of the $2 trillion plan that was rolled out by Biden still need to be worked out. We'll probably have to wait until after the election um, to, to get some of that information. But broadly, we should expect pretty strong investments for EVs. He's talked about about $450 billion of the $2 trillion be directed towards subsidies and buyback of clunkers. There's going to be strong incentives for infrastructure, public transit, modernization of the electric grid, transmission lines, building retrofitting, uh, especially on the federal level and on the state and local level, and subsidies for new research and development and expanding green energy subsidies. So that's a, it's a, it's a wide path wide lens of investments. So we won't get details for a while, but we should likely be thinking about extension of the existing alphabet soup of credits as BTC, ITC, PTC. And we should get things like potentially a California style LCFS type program more nationwide. The benefit, this benefits the EV and the battery companies, of course, as well as the wind and solar developers and, and the biofuel industry. I would say that the big push on the California style LCFS type program would be huge to jumpstart even the, the hydrogen economy in the United States. Costs of hydrogen development are clearly very high, but if you think about what California LCFS is providing, it's equivalent to $200 a ton, equivalent for, for like a carbon tax. So that's an important catalyst. Uh, in the long-haul transportation market, hydrogen, uh, generally speaking, competes with biofuels so to the extent that these credits become more widely available across the United States, not just in California, we could see both biofuels and hydrogen benefiting. So what isn't, what isn't being uh, talked about all that much is uh, the aid that's going to be going to the carbon capture industry in the U.S. It's really a nascent industry. There's only a handful of projects being planned. But a bigger push to channel investments toward carbon capture, which is being being talked about in this $2 trillion plan, will really launch a number of projects that could spur a new industry in the United States. Now, Marshall, your recent comments I found really interesting. To me, it goes against conventional wisdom. He's downplaying the healthcare system overhaul that you would potentially have in a democratic sweep. Now, why is that? And could Medicare for All still be a possibility? You know, my, my view is, is that Medicare for All is a pretty unlikely scenario. I don't think you could ever rule it out. But I think when you look at what has been put forward by the Biden campaign, he's really never advocated a Medicare for all or single payer system. Not during his time with Obama, not in recent years 
um, and and not during the presidential primary, or sorry, the primaries to get to the presidential nomination. So the way I think about this is that really he's more likely to go after coverage expansion, and that would be potentially through a public option health plan, but not a Medicare for all, as well as completion of Medicaid expansion. And those are really strategies that he has advocated all along and build upon the Obamacare base that has been passed and put into uh, put into action over the past 12 years. So I guess the way I look at it, I think it's really much more likely to be a, a coverage expansion and some changes at the margin, but not wholesale change for Medicare. The last thing I'd say is that if you look at how he is and Kamala Harris have been campaigning, they really have been pulling much more towards the middle as opposed to the far left. And that's where, you know, the the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders view for Medicare for all has been much more popular. That doesn't seem to be the way they've been campaigning or leaning. Yeah, a lot of people seem to forget that, that, uh, you know, they are much more centric in, in, in those views. And maybe we have time for, for one more question here, Marshall, and I'm, I'm going to stick with you here on, you know, healthcare and the subsectors. Which areas in healthcare are going to be most impacted by dramatic changes in payers and also coverage? So I think what I would say is most likely a change is to see changes in pharmaceutical pricing, as we've spoken about. And so I think watching the pharmaceutical and to a lesser extent, the biotechnology players for what pricing, uh, what changes to the pricing system could be proposed and potentially implemented is, is really important going forward. And that's really a U.S. issue. And then the second would be managed care. As we've just talked about, I don't see a Medicare for all or single payer option as a likely outcome. The one thing that I would say is that there are likely to be changes in the coverage that could be pushed again through Medicaid or possibly opening up Medicare in for a buy-in. And what we will have to do is see the details of those to really understand how much that could impact the existing health insurers or managed care companies. So the Uniteds and Anthems and, and CVS Aetna's of the world. So I think there it's really going to come down to the devil's being in the details of what exactly is being proposed to see if they'll really be as big an impact as perhaps people fear. My general sense of it is that there's much greater concern, particularly by generalist investors, about what could happen to man- to manage care and to the managed care stocks than I think is really warranted by the likelihood of change and the degree of change that even an all-democratic administration plus uh, houses of Congress could pass. Well, great. Great. Thank you, Marshall, so much. Um, and I think we're, we're running up on time here. So, Marshall, Dimitri, I just want to thank you so much for your tremendous insights on on healthcare and energy and how things are likely going to play out here during Election Day. So thank you again for joining us. 
And to close, I'd like to just point out that it's very hard to handicap an election. And a lot of times, consensus expectations may not be right. Case in point is if you look back to the election in 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, consensus expectations thought that was going to be broadly negative for the markets. Yet when investors realized that you're going to have lower regulations and a huge tax package, the markets moved up and never looked back. But in order to be able to tell who's going to be the winner of the election, you may not have to look any further than the markets themselves. If the markets are positive in the three months heading up to election day, traditionally, when the markets have moved higher in the three months prior to the election day, that's been positive for the incumbent party, whether it's a first-term or a second-term president. In this case, it would be Donald Trump winning another four years in the White House. If the markets are down in the three months prior to election day, traditionally, you've seen a changing of the guard. In this case, it would be Vice President Biden taking over the White House. And the market has correctly predicted the winner every time since 1984 and 86% of the time since 1936. And as of today, since August 3rd, the markets are up 5% currently. Now, I know we have three weeks until the elections. A lot of things can happen, but it'll be interesting to see if the market can continue to be able to pick the winner from the presidential elections. So I want to say thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you again for joining us. I hope we've provided some good market perspective ahead of the upcoming elections. And we hope you'll continue to join us throughout 2020. And we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Thank you.